And then the rest of this book from here on out is going to cover essentially one year's time. So massive timeline, big, big, little bitty little spot right here. And this is what we're going to be looking at for the rest of the book of, of Exodus. Zoomed in for 35 chapters on this one event. And so this should give you an idea just how big this event is in salvation history and human history and and the, the, the way all this plays out should give you just an idea of how important this is. And so I hope you guys will continue to be on, the, on this uh, ride with us as we go throughout this and see what God's going to teach us about this one year of human history and what that will teach us about us, and more importantly, what that's going to teach us about God. Many of you guys know, if you've been here anytime, you know that Emily and I are middle school sweethearts, which means a lot of different things. But one of the things it means is we have a lot of shared history together, whereas uh, a lot of couples, probably most of you guys, you have to talk about high school separately. You have to talk about, well, mine was like this and mine was like that. For us, this is a shared history uh, that we have, and with that comes a, an opportunity to reflect on some, some different memories uh, from high school. And one that comes up from time to time, one that we talked about just recently, is, is Emily's old car that she used to have uh, in, in high school. She had an 80s model Chevy Corsica. Go ahead and put that picture up there. You see that wonderful car right there? That thing is awesome compared to the car that Emily had. So Emily's car was way worse than that thing, okay? It looked similar to that. It was maroon. It was kind of like that. Hers may have actually looked a little bit sport, sportier, but it was, it was really, really close to that. If you've seen a, a Lumina or a, a Beretta, those are all the same car. They just put different tags on them. So, um, but that's what she had. Uh, the inside, the, the, the roof was coming down. The, the, the like fabric on it would like get in your way as you were driving. Uh, it, was, it was in bad shape, and it got... Her where she needed to go, which was the most important thing, though, right? That's all you need in a car is get you where you need to go. The problem is it got her where she needed to go, like, 90% of the time. The other 10% of the time, you know, the, the one out of the nine and ten times didn't, uh, it would break down. And where it would break down is naturally the worst spot you can uh, imagine. The number of times that either me or her dad would have to go and help her out in the middle of the summer, in the middle of Kingston Pike, right outside of West Town Mall, is more times that I would care to remember. Sitting there in a turn lane right outside West Town Mall with the hood popped, steam coming out, and uh, it, that car was a bad car. It was not a, a good car at all, but that's the one that she had uh, in, in high school, and she eventually upgraded not, longer, uh, not long after that, right after we graduated from high school, she, she upgraded, and she actually bought my dad's car from him, and it was an early, early 90s model Pontiac Grand Prix. So you guys remember those? They don't even make Pontiacs anymore, but it was a Pontiac Grand Prix. My dad loved that car. He babied that car, and he gave Emily a great deal whenever she bought it, and she loved that car whenever she had it too. And we, we had that car for a, a, a pretty good while, and it served us uh, served us well, and, and we graduated from uh, college, we moved to Kentucky, and that car went with us whenever we, we got there, and after a couple of years, we decided it was time to trade in that Grand Prix, and that was because, literally, as I was driving down one of the busiest intersections in the city of Louisville, my brakes decided to work enough to get me from about 55 to about 45, and that's about all that they did. So it slowed me down just a little bit, uh, and I still remember passing through that intersection of 
six lanes wide either side, not stopping, just thinking, this is how I'm going to die. This is how this is going to end. And it turns out something in the power brakes had, had failed, and it made me say, it's time for a new car now. So we, we sold that one, uh, and we were completely honest up front. We told them the brakes weren't working, uh, and so don't, don't judge us. We, we, we were... We were up front with it, uh, but we sold that one, and then Emily was able to get the car she really wanted. For the first time in her life, she was able to actually pick out her car. The other two were gifts or just a really good deal that my dad had given, so she needed to buy those, and she, she was fine with that, but this time she could get the car she wanted. She graduated from college. She had gotten a job. She had begun her career, and, and this was time for her to pick out her car. So we went to work. We did our research. Now you guys that are like just now doing car shopping, it's easy. You pick out one of 17 apps. You, you pull up the used car apps, the new car apps, the dealership, and you just search for whatever car you want. And you can find any car anywhere, you know, this side of the, the, the Mississippi, and you can go get it that day if you really want it. This is not how this worked in the early 2000s. This was before the the internet was working in a way that actually helped you with cars for the most part. So what you had to do at that time was open the newspaper and look for used cars if you wanted a used car. And that's what we did. We did all kinds of research. But Emily decided she wanted a new car. Not a new-to-her car, but a new car. She really wanted that don't give me all the Dave Ramsey stuff. I understand all the financial stuff about how you should buy used, and that's the better financial decision. I get it. I know how that works, but that's what she wanted. She is the one that was, I was still in school, but she was the one that was making the money at the time. She had the career, and so we, we went to work. We got the consumer reports. We, we knew the, the invoice costing. We knew everything. I could have told you more about the cars we were interested in than the, the dealer probably could have, and we eventually narrowed it down to, to two cars. It was a Mazda 6 or a Toyota Solara. That's the two that we wanted. The Solara is like the two-door, uh, the two-door Camry. And for weeks, we agonized over which car we wanted to get. Which one should we pick out? And some of y'all are already out there judging me because I picked, we picked one of those two cars. That's fine. Whatever. This was the two that we had come down to. Full pros and cons list, everything was there, and we finally decided if we could get the dealer to come off of the price a couple thousand dollars, which we thought was reasonable based off of our research, then we would go for the Mazda, because that's the one she wanted with its style. So we went in, and after an hour or so of negotiation, they wouldn't come off the price enough, so we walked. We walked, we said, no, we're not going to do this, but we, that made us then confident in the car that we wanted. We wanted the Toyota Solara. We knew exactly what we wanted. We knew the options we wanted. We knew the dealership we were going to get it at. We knew the color we wanted, and we knew exactly how much we would pay. So we walked into the dealership, and we told them all of those things. And after a kind of bit of going back and forth, because they got to do their dance and we got to do our dance, we got it for the price that we wanted. A few weeks later, it would be delivered, and everybody was happy. We were pumped. We were super excited. You can imagine the satisfaction that Emily had felt. She went to school. She had graduated. She had a career. She could pay for this thing. It was affordable. It was well within our budget of what we thought we could, we could do. We felt like all the hard work and the long hours of school had paid off. I can't really convey how the level of satisfaction that that felt in that moment. 
Hours of studying flashed in our minds. Steaming engines on the middle of Kingston Pike in the middle of the summer kind of went through our our minds. A a fear of running through a traffic light and knowing I was about to die. All those things kind of ran through my mind whenever we signed the papers to buy that car. But all that was done, we had this car. So we went to eat, we went home, we went to bed. The next day we went to work and we were just waiting for the delivery and for the car to show up. But then something really odd happened. The excitement started to wane, and the doubt started to creep in. And all the questions began to come up. Did we do the right thing? You know, it would have been smarter if we'd bought the used car. Is Toyota the really type of the, the, the brand that we wanted? Are we sure that that's what we wanted to do? Did, 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 should we have done something else? Should we have gone back to the Mazda dealership? Should we have looked at another car that we hadn't even considered? All these questions, after weeks and weeks of research, all these questions came flooding in, and the excitement was quickly replaced with anxiety, nervousness, doubt. Y'all ever had something like that happen? You do all the legwork and you're confident in your decision, only just moments later to to really wonder, like, what did I just do? Why did I just buy this thing? Psychologists and marketing professionals have a name for this. You guys know what it is? Buyer's remorse. That's exactly what it is. And we had a terrible case of buyer's remorse. It's terrible. It robs you of what should be a joyful moment in your life when you've made this purchase. In college, I was a marketing major. I took a class called consumer behavior, and we spent weeks talking about how to prevent buyer's remorse in your customer. You want your customer to walk away feeling like they've got a great deal with the best possible product because those people go and tell other people, which means that you get more sales and they become your biggest advertisement. Buyer's remorse spread seeds of doubt in current customers and potential customers. And that's all bad. I knew about all of these things. I had learned about these things. But now we had, or at least I had, a very strong case of buyer's remorse. Now, we still bought the car. And 15 years later, we've got, and 200,000 miles later, we still have that car. It's been a great car. We love that car. We still think it looks great. Uh, to this day, it's the only car that we've ever bought new, and I feel pretty confident it might be the only car that we ever buy new. But um, no more buyer's remorse when we've had a purchase car since then. But that one, for that moment, man, we really worried whether we had done it. And I tell you this story because when we get into the cha- to chapter 5 here, the book of Exodus, there really is a point to this. When, I get into, uh, when we get into chapter 5 of the book of Exodus... There's going to be one massive case of buyer's remorse for the Hebrew people. They are going to ask all the questions about what have we just done? Why did we let this happen? Oh no, we shouldn't have done what we just did. But they're going to have a good reason for it. Whereas mine was all these imagined things, they're going to have tangible reasons to say, maybe we shouldn't have done this the way that we did. But it's important that we look at this because it's real life and it's exactly what you and I deal with every day on some level. Last week we saw how Moses left the cave and went and had the interaction with God, or left the cave where he had had his interaction with God in the burning bush and he, he went to the people of Israel, to the elders of Israel, convinced them he had indeed heard from God. You remember this? He showed them all the, 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 the miraculous things that he, that he could do, convinced them and they said, okay, this guy really did hear from God. The elders of Israel were ready to follow through with the plan that he laid out because he said, God spoke to me 
and he said, this is what we should do. We should go to Pharaoh. We should do all these things. This was actually Aaron, Moses' brother, because Moses was too afraid to talk. It was communicating these things, but this is what was happening. He said, hey, we're going to go now to Pharaoh, and we're going to do all these things. And the elders of Israel said, we believe you. We believe you've heard from God. We support you in this, Moses. Aaron, you guys go to Pharaoh. You go do your thing. And they fully expect that this plan will work and that God will deliver them. Everybody's on the same page in this moment. They can almost taste the freedom that is in front of them. There's a faith that is tangible. It's backed by works. The lives of the people of Israel are about to change for the first time in centuries. For the first time in centuries, they, they seem to actually have faith that God is going to show up and work on their behalf. So let's read in chapter 5 and see how God rewards the faith of these people. Chapter 5, verse 1. Later, Moses and Aaron went, went in and said to Pharaoh. So they, the, the elders have commissioned them. Moses and Aaron are now going straight to Pharaoh, and they're about to carry out the plan that they had put before them. And Moses, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. So they strut in there. They're doing what they had planned. You have to imagine, imagine they walked in there, kind of heads up high, chest puffed out a little bit. They got the backing of God. They can do all these miracles. Pharaoh's about to listen to them. After all, God sent us on this mission. We have faith in God. We're going to do this. I don't know how they got in there. I don't know if they used some of Moses' old connections in the palace to get him a hearing before Pharaoh. We, we don't really know how he got there. But they got there, and they walked in, and they said, Pharaoh... Let my people go. Or if you're in Sunday school class, they said, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Right? That's how that works. They walked in. They said, let my people go. Men full of faith and full of the backing of God. If God is for us, who could be against us? Paul hadn't written that yet, but I guarantee you they were saying it. Things don't quite go as they planned. Look at verse 2. But Pharaoh responded, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I do not know anything about Yahweh. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Well, that throws a wrench in the plans. So Pharaoh doesn't take his, this demand seriously or kindly. You see, Pharaoh thought of himself as God. you understand that? Pharaoh thought he was a God. He was revered as such in Egypt. So when a bunch of slaves show up and start talking about how their God, whose name is Yahweh, is going to make demands and that he has to then follow through and answer to, to those demands, that's a slap in the face to Pharaoh, a God in his own mind and a God within his country. And the response that Pharaoh gives in verse 2 is essentially the theme of the rest of this book. We are going to be answering these two questions for the rest of the book of Exodus that Pharaoh asks here. Who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? Who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? And that's why we're studying it too. Because there's no more important answer to that question there's nothing more important than answering that question, just as it was true with Pharaoh, just as it is now with us. The title of this sermon series is No Other Gods, because Yahweh is about to show Pharaoh that he, 
nor any of the Egyptian gods can stand up to the power that he has. He will answer this question. God, Yahweh, will come forward and he will answer this question. And if you know the story, what you're thinking right now is, oh, here it comes. I know this part of the story. This is where the frogs come in. This is where the gnats come in. This is where things are about to get really crazy. This is where the plagues are about to happen. Not quite. We're not quite there yet. Instead, things take a turn in a very different direction. I'm going to read several verses here, but it'll communicate to us the story of what happens here. So look with me in uh, Exodus 5, verse 3. Then they answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, or else he may strike us with a plague or a sword. Just, it's interesting how their tone changes there. It was, Pharaoh, you got to do this because you're supposed to. Now all of a sudden, Aaron and, and Moses are saying, Pharaoh, you got to do this because if you don't, God's going to kill us. That's not what God had said. But it just shows you where their mind was. They were scared. They were worried about what was about to happen. And they knew if Pharaoh didn't come through, if Pharaoh didn't do this right now, they knew that they were going to be in trouble when they went back to the people of Israel. And so they said, you've got to let us go so that we can make this sacrifice to our God or else he may strike us with a plague or a sword. And the king of Egypt said to him, or said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your work. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous. Why, and you would stop them from working? So like, there's all these people out here and you think I'm going to let them have the weekend off? I don't think so. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as, all, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it. And not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and the foremen of the people went out and said to them, This is what Pharaoh says. I am not giving you straw. Go get the straw for yourselves, wherever you can find it. But there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, Finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when the straw was provided. Then the Israelite foreman, whom Pharaoh's slaves, slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So you understand what happened, right? He said, you got to make just as much as you were making before, but we're not going to give you the raw materials. you got to go get those for yourself. We're not helping you in this. I expect this, this pile to be just as big as it was yesterday, but you got to go get your stuff. And then when they didn't do it, they started beating the foreman and saying, no, 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 your guys have got to deliver here and we're not going to help you. Pharaoh's orders. You see, Pharaoh thought if he upped the workload, then they wouldn't have time to listen to this would-be revolutionary in Moses. Let's occupy their time. In verse 15, so the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it is your own people who are at fault. What are you beating us for? 
You upped our quota. You, you made it harder for us to do this, but you're not giving us a break. What's the deal, Pharaoh? Why are you doing this? But he said, you are slackers, slackers. This is why you are saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. So you see what happened there. They go to Pharaoh and they say, Pharaoh, give us a break. You've got to help us. And he said, you're a slacker. I can't hear that without thinking about Back to the Future. But you're a slacker. You, are, you, are, you, you guys are just trying to go. If you've got time to go out into the wilderness and worship God for three days, you've got time to go find your own straw. That was Pharaoh's conclusion. So y'all stay right where you're at. You're not going away to worship Yahweh. I'm your God anyway. Do as I say. Go do this. You got time to take three days off. You got time to work harder. The Israelites are confused. What are you doing this for? But whenever he says, if you've got time, they know, oh, wait a minute. Moses must have done this. I guess Moses has gone to Pharaoh. I guess that guy has come back, gone to Pharaoh, and it's Moses' fault and Moses' big mouth that's gotten us into this trouble. They had trusted him. They had sent him before Pharaoh, and they thought they were about to be set free. They had gone to work that morning thinking, you know what? This is going to be good. This is my last day at work. They had senioritis big time. They were like, okay, we're out of here. This is the last day I've got to punch this clock. And then their workload increased, and they were confused. They weren't delivered. Far from it. Life just got a whole lot harder. They were punished. That is some tough medicine to swallow there. Think about it. I tell you guys all the time that suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love you or that he's forgotten about you. It's kind of the theme of of much of what we've talked about over the last several weeks. And we all know the concept of karma, which unfortunately far too many people think is the way Christianity works. It's not. But we all know the concept of karma. You do bad things, then bad things will come back to get you. You do good things, then eventually good things will happen to you. Well, this is a good thing. These guys had faith in God. You have faith in God? God is supposed to show up and he's supposed to work on your behalf. But look at this. The people of Israel suffered because they and Moses did exactly what they were told to do. They did exactly what God told them to do. They were faithful to trust God, and that's why they suffer. Man, that's tough. God asked them to go to Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh, and then life gets worse for them. They suffered because they were faithful. What kind of God is this? At this point, I'm thinking Pharaoh's asking some good questions. Who is this Yahweh, and why should any of us care about him? If he's going to punish people for being good, then who needs him? Certainly not the people of Israel. They'll just go right back to what they were doing. Their life may have been bad, but it wasn't this bad. At least they could get through the day. Now they can't even get through the day. This is what they say. Look at, us in, look at it in verse 21. The people of Israel and Moses are going to reply. Verse 21. May the Lord take note of you and judge. This is what Israelites are saying to Moses. Verse 21. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek in front of Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. 
So basically what the people of Israel said is, Moses, you made us look bad. We were flying under the radar with this Pharaoh guy, just enough to get by, draw no attention, and now look at what you've done. His eyes are fixed on us. And at this point, the people of Israel have a serious case of buyer's remorse. What have we done listening to this Moses guy? We trusted this idiot to go before Pharaoh. Our lives were awful, but they were better than this. Could we not have done this a different way? Is there not a better plan? If we're going to be set free, could we not have like secretly amassed an army or something to go up? There's more of us than there is of them. Surely there was a better way for us to do this. Why did we have to send Moses? That guy can't even speak anyway. Could we have not found a better, more charismatic spokesperson for us? Instead of this old man that stutters when he goes before Pharaoh? This was a terrible plan. Whose idea was this? Why did we trust him? It's a massive case of buyer's remorse. Why did they trust in this plan? After all, God hadn't shown up in hundreds of years. Why would he now? I just wonder, have you ever been there in your life? You feel like you've played by the rules. You've done things the right way only to have God seemingly leave you hanging when you needed him the most. You got stuck. You went to church. You took your kids to church. You gave some money at church. You were a nice guy. You were honest, hardworking, employee of the month. And now it feels like you got nothing to show for it. Some of you in here, you, you know God owes you nothing. You know you're in here this morning by the skin of your teeth. But you hang around us Christians too long and you'll start to feel a little bit different because eventually we all get the sense of entitlement like we've done enough good works and we've done enough good things and we've shown up enough Sunday mornings and enough Wednesday nights and enough Tuesday nights and enough Friday nights and enough whatever we've given up enough now God is on our side and we're good to go it's hardwired into us to feel like we we deserve something to feel like we're owed something. We get our act together for more than five seconds and we feel like we've earned something from God, some kind of privilege or favor from Him. And when He doesn't deliver, it can be really hard to keep our faith above the water. It can be really hard to keep from drowning. After all, that's the bargain we're making, right? This is what we do when we come to church, right? We live good enough lives. He gives us a good enough life in return. We're good enough for him, he's good enough for us. That's the deal we make, right? That's Southern Christianity, American Christianity at its core. If we're good enough, he'll be good enough for us. Jesus warns in the Gospels of the seed that's thrown on the rocky ground but doesn't flourish because the weeds choke it out. It's one of the parables that he tells. And as the plant tries to grow, the cares of the world weigh it down and eventually kill the, 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 the fruit, the root that was growing. It kills it and it wipes it out. And far too many would-be worshipers of God have walked away from him because he didn't show up whenever they thought he was supposed to. When the marriage got hard, when the kid got sick, 
When the money ran out, when the car broke down, when the grades were bad, when the game was lost, when the husband walked out, when the pregnancy test never came back positive. They thought they'd paid their dues and they were content serving God so long as the bargain bargain held true. And then when God seemed to disappear, they said, if God's not going to hold up his end of the bargain, I can't really bother to hold up mine either. And the reason why is because they thought that they had earned the right to have God show up when they needed and how they needed. Now that's not the words we use, but it's the feeling we have. It's a a big, massive plate of disappointment. If we come to God, He's supposed to take care of us, right? And here the people of Israel come to God, and because they come to God, they're punished for it. And that doesn't make any sense at all. They have buyer's remorse and it makes a lot of sense why they would. And so it goes with us. We come to God, He doesn't show up whenever we think that we need Him or whenever we think He's supposed to and we begin to think there might be quicker fixes, easier roads or better options. Because it's not God that we want. It's all the other things that we really wanted. We came to God to get the other things instead of letting the other things drive us to God. And so we came to God to get the other things and when God didn't deliver the other things, we said, thanks but no thanks, I can find something else that can get me these things. And that's where we go chase after all the other things. I don't say this flippantly. These are hard things in our lives. The Bible doesn't run from these things. It doesn't run from these pictures. It doesn't pretend all is well. It deals with the heartache of disappointment when God doesn't show up. It deals with this stuff when we feel it in our lives. But here's the deal. God is not our butler. He is not our game show host offering door number one, two, or three. He's not our loan officer. He's not our carnival barker. He's not our magician, and he's not our lovable grandpa. If that's all God is to you, your God is too small. So if our God is too small, then just who is this God? Let's read how God answers this question when Moses asks it. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Moses comes to God and he says, God, what, what, what's up, man? <laughs> I did what I was supposed to do. Where you at? Why are you making me look bad? Why are you making me a marked man? And the Lord replied to Moses, Now you are going to see what I will do to Pharaoh. He will let them go because of my strong hand. He will drive them out of this land because of my strong hand. And then God spoke to Moses telling him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name Yahweh to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land they lived in as foreigners. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites from whom the, from whom the Egyptians are forcing to work as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, 
Tell the Israelites, I am Yahweh, and I will deliver you from the forced labor of the Egyptians and free you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who delivered you from the forced labor of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a possession. I am Yahweh. So if God is not our butler, if he's not our, our game show host, if he's not our magician and he's not our grandpa, who is he? He is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. And he will keep his covenant with those that are his. Jesus teaches that the new covenant is now what is in place, that God has kept his covenant to us through the new covenant that is sealed by Jesus' own blood. God will keep that covenant just like he kept it with Israel. Friends, the God of the Bible is so much bigger than being there at our beck and call. He's so much bigger than a God that operates on a simple sales transaction. We pay our dues, he pays us back. What scripture teaches is that we don't want that deal. Because what our wages have earned us is death and the wrath of God. We don't want that deal where we pay our dues and he pays us back. We don't want in on that. We want something else. No good deed can outweigh the depth of our sin and the breach of God's law. We don't want what we're due. We want grace, and this is what the new covenant offers freely. And this is what the old covenant offers here to the people of Israel. God says, you may be denying me and wishing Moses had never shown up, but I'm Yahweh and I'm going to deliver you anyway. And now what what it says is, you may be a sinner, you may be gone and a, a rebel, an enemy to me, but I'm offering grace anyway. This is the new covenant. And the God that we serve is a covenant-keeping God, not a karma-keeping God. He is a covenant-keeping God. We want grace, and the new covenant offers it freely. So come drink of that grace. Come to the cross. Come know Jesus. And then we're not, we're not dependent upon God to show up to give us all these other things because when we come to God, all we want is God. When we come to Jesus, we tell Jesus, I need you, Jesus, and all this other stuff, you'll help me through it. You'll be with me in it. I don't need this other stuff. I need you, Jesus. That's what it means. That's what Christianity is. Not, I pay my dues, God pays me back, I'm good enough, he's good enough, we're all happy. Christianity says, you don't deserve anything, you certainly don't deserve what you think you're owed. But instead, God goes to the cross, takes the wrath and the pain and the suffering and the death that we do deserve, and then graciously offers us a new one, a new life. So come drink of that grace. No buyer's remorse here. Because Jesus has paid it in full, not us. Will you pray with me? 
Father, this morning, as we study this text and we stop here in chapter 5, the people of Israel are still very much slaves. Very much in pain, very much wondering where you are. And Father, we thank you for the rest of this story. That we are not slaves to our good deeds that we have to try to mount up so that you will be happy with us. No longer slaves to the tyranny of the moment or these things and the stuff around us that the world says we need. But instead we are free under a new covenant bought with the blood of Christ. Free to praise you and to worship you. And to know that even when you are silent, you are faithful because of the cross. And we worship you in that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.